You are now listening to the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast. Wait, the answer was add 10 gallons? Add 10 gallons. My first thought was we got to put active children. Yeah, great. <laughs> Trucks on the, on the way. On the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. I've got two observations, uh, neither of which are really educated or well thought out. <laughs> <laughs> Which are like most of my observations are. There aren't a lot of problems on a job site that can't be solved with a sack full of biscuits. Today's episode of the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast is brought to you by Actigel 208. Actigel 208 is a high-performance additive for the concrete industry that is greatly beneficial to the producer. It enables them to increase the percentage of manufactured sand by up to 100% and completely replace all the natural sand in the mix. In areas where natural sand is scarce, inconsistent, and expensive, this provides a huge benefit to any ready-mix company out there. Benefits of manufactured sand and concrete include consistent air content, improved compaction, and increased density. Now in the past, the downside of using manufactured sands was that they were hard to pump, hard to place, and hard to finish. Well, Actigel 208 solves all those issues. By improving suspension, stability, and the quality of the cement paste in the mix, Actigel overcomes the old issues with manufactured sand and leaves them behind. Let Actigel 208 improve the quality of your mix while saving money on every yard you produce. For more information, visit us at actigel.com. That's A-C-T-I-G-E-L.com. And welcome in, everybody, to episode 16 of the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast. We appreciate you being with us. Uh, my name is Josh, and as always, I'm joined by Paul and Joey. What's going on, Paul? It's a good day in the industry, brother. For sure. Joey, what's up? Well, not a whole lot, man. Just got off a plane from Wyoming about uh, eight hours ago, so I'm tired. A little jet lag from uh, <laughs> a little jet lag from your cross-country flight there? Wait, is that a red eye? <laughs> no, nah, it... Well, what time? I don't even know what time it is. It's 11 my time. I landed I landed 12 hours ago. I'm sorry. Got home uh, a couple hours after that. So, yeah, I left Denver at 7.30 local time. So, 8.30 my time. How was your week out there? Let, let the people know what you were what you were into this, this week. Oh, boy. Um, so, yeah, I went to Wyoming this past weekend to do some turkey hunting. Uh, got me a turkey on Sunday, and then Sunday night it started snowing, and it didn't stop snowing until Tuesday afternoon. So it dumped about eight inches of snow on us, made it pretty hard to get around and walk around. So it kind of locked up the birds, didn't kill any more birds uh, for the rest of the week, and then came home, and that was a very cliff note version of what happened. Yeah, so you turned from a hunter into a hiker. Pretty much. Oh, yeah. I was just a fool walking around the Black Hills of Wyoming with a shotgun. That's all I was. Well, <laughs> at least you got a bird before it started snowing on you. Yeah, those things are pretty. Uh, if anybody follows me on Instagram, I posted a picture of it. They're pretty birds. They got white tips on their tail fans, and uh, they're big, big black and white turkeys. What's your Instagram handle? Shameless plug. Shameless plug is at Reverend434. My IG handle. See a bunch of dead birds. See him introducing his tiny baby to dead birds. You I love, mean, that's you, your thing. You love you know. to bring that up. <laughs> yep. Yeah, that's turkey hunting and concrete. Those are the only two things I know anything about in life. So there you go. I mean, you're not alone in that. It's quite the industry. It's a huge industry. Yep. Yeah, it looks like fun. I just if you don't grow up around it, nobody introduces it to you. Then. Uh, you don't go out and do it. You don't assign, you know, specific meaning to that. But yeah. you want a guy who assigns meaning to it, Joey Bell is your boy. Go yeah. follow him. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's, it's definitely a legacy hobby. Hunting in general. You don't, you don't find too many people that just one day up and take up hunting as a hobby. I mean, there are some. Don't get me wrong. But mostly mm-hmm. it's like, you know, my dad did it. My uncles do it. So, you know, I was in a tree stand at five years old trying to be quiet. Well, I mean, I'm trying to get my little girl and you know, interested in STEM type activities, right? Yeah. Math and science and that kind of stuff. And she's now she's five in preschool, but can do math that would blow your mind. She's so smart. But uh, but beyond like just like the studies, trying to ingrain like a work a- work ethic into her. Right. <laughs> Proud <laughs> Papa moment the other day. Uh, she was joking. She had her iPad. She was playing at this app and she said, dad, if you complete this task, I'll give you a thousand dollars. 
I was like, a thousand dollars. Where did you get a thousand dollars from? She goes, well, money comes from hard work. So I was working hard. <laughs> My God, it feels that easy. <laughs> or that simple rather. Maybe not that easy, but it right. feels that simple. And else in this family, you want money, you work for it. Love that. Mm -hmm. Yes, sir. Speaking of hard work, that actually leads me into uh, something I was reading earlier today as we get into the current events section of, of this podcast. If you're out there willing to do some hard work, maybe it is that easy to where if you work hard, you'll make as much money as you want to. Because right now, if you know how to work with your hands and you have a brain between your ears, they'll pay you anything within reason. But I was reading a, a study that was done by the National Association of Home Builders, and they say that there's a shortfall of 200,000 skilled trade workers in this country currently. And that's pulling data mainly from 2020. I mean, that's recent data. They said that um, that number has even surged a little bit at the beginning of this year in Q1 of 2021, surged even upwards close to 300,000 Golly. Short, uh, shortfall of skilled trade workers. And I mean, that that's a big deal, obviously, because if you don't have people to build the houses, you're not going to build the houses and everything goes into the price of you know the the cost of a house everyone wants to talk about how the price of lumber is way up and it is i mean gosh that's stupid but also people don't really think that 30 to 40 percent of the total cost of the home is labor mm. so you know did they give any specific reasons for uh why there's a shortage of people because i think everybody listening to this is probably acutely aware of the home price situation that the mark the houses aren't even making it to market and mm -hmm. the ones that do last a couple of days i mean that happened to joey literally when he was mm -hmm. selling his house but as people were looking around to buy the prices are just through the roof way higher than maybe even even should be and uh so i'm curious you, you know i think it's a multifaceted problem in that industry of why those prices are so high but one of the problems is what you're alluding to there's no inventory. So the way the prices come down is by more inventory. And one of the ways those inventories are balanced out is by new home construction. Mm -hmm. So if that's not happening, why? And you're saying it's a labor shortage. Are they indicating like what's causing that shortage? Materials and labor shortage. Yeah. But what's causing the labor shortage is no one is, no one's doing the work. I mean, there has been a huge push towards STEM career paths. And over the last 10, 15, 20 years, a lot of kids are going to college. You're starting to see the four-year degrees kind of level out or even decline in some places. But, you know, people aren't graduating high school and going out on the job site at the rate that they used to. And the average age, depending on where you look and what you read, the average age of a skilled laborer is in the 50s sometimes. Jeez. You know, you're looking at, you know, 42 to 58-ish, depending on what industry you want to hone in on. And there aren't a whole lot of 18-year-olds out there with a carpenter's belt on. Yeah, ready to go swing a hammer. Yeah, uh, yeah. And you know, how how do you how do you address that? Well, I mean, you have to make you have to make a career path that is attractive, um, and compensation is certainly attractive. Compensation and benefits, and but I mean, you don't want to unionize. Yeah, because. As, as I mentioned, I mean, you're already looking at 30 to 40 percent of the house being the cost of labor. You unionize all of a sudden, that's 60, mm -hmm. <laughs> like, you know. So. Yeah, we, we got to avoid the union conversation here. It'll go way into a <laughs> horrible, terrible, dark place on this podcast. You're not wrong. You're not wrong. Um, Mike Rowe, I believe everybody knows who Mike Rowe is. Yeah, the Micro Works Foundation is a is a pretty cool foundation. Why don't you um, read a little bit to the people about what that thing's all about? That uh, Micro Foundation that he has set up um, says, "What's the problem? We've made work the enemy. America has become slowly but undeniably disconnected from the most fundamental elements of civilization: food, energy, education, and the very nature of work itself." Over the last 30 years, America has convinced itself that the best path for the most people is an expensive four-year degree. Pop culture has glorified the quote-unquote corner office job while unintentionally belittling the jobs that help build the corner office. As a result, our society has devalued any other path to success and happiness. Community colleges, trade schools, and apprenticeship programs are labeled as alternative. 
Millions of well-intended parents and guidance counselors see apprenticeships and on-the-job training opportunities as vocational consolation prizes, best suited for those not cut out for the brass ring, a four-year degree. In 2008, Micro created the MicroWorks Foundation to launch a national PR campaign for skilled labor. Yeah, that's when his television started taking off. It's basically a scholarship uh, for for skilled trades, for educating you know secondary education, for vocational schools, technical colleges, apprenticeships, things like that. It's basically a blue collar scholarship. No, it's awesome. Yeah. Absolutely, sounds like something Micro would do. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and there's also the HBI, the Home Builders Institute, and they have like industry career paths, apprenticeship programs, and stuff like that. And I actually think they're probably, as far as volume goes, they're probably the leaders in getting getting people into that industry. But I, I think it's twofold. Um, I think I think there are a lot of people like Micro and HBI and you know there's a lot of programs that are developing skilled workers to go out there and build homes and buildings and stuff like that. But the other edge of that blade is you have people retiring at a very fast rate. I mean, just the way the demographics work out in the industry, you have a lot of people retiring. So I mean you are working overtime to keep that to keep the job sites full. Dude, um, finishing concrete as an old man's got to be tough. Mm-hmm. Well, those are some grizzled dudes out there on the job <laughs> yes, site. Sir. For sure. Yes, sir. For sure. I don't know, man. I guess, I guess you can get, you can get used to dang near anything, but Dude, mm-hmm. I'm telling you an industry that's paying good for techs is concrete. Yeah. Man, you can make some good money working for concrete companies at, at an entry level position, truck driver. I mean, some of these places are paying top dollar. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and not not to go the financial route on this podcast because that's not what we're about. But wise man once said, "It's not about what you make; it's what you spend." Mm. So if you're making a decent living, wherever that may be, I mean that varies from di- different parts of the country. But if if you're making a decent living and you don't have to pay fifty to a hundred thousand dollars worth of student loan debt, I mean, look at how much further you are ahead of of everyone that is paying that and making this you know similar money to you. Are we turning this into the Dave Ramsey show? Because if that if that's the case, I'm ready. No. I've been preparing for this day for years. <laughs> uh, I, I I can subscribe to everything Dave Ramsey has to say. Um, I do take his advice sometimes, other times I don't. But you know my thing. Like if you've listened to one of his shows, you've <laughs> you've listened to all of them. It's, my, it's the best podcast out there besides this one. <laughs> yeah. Well, what's great about our podcast is we got different guests from all over the industry, which is great. But there's also some new interest in starting concrete related podcasts. We're not the only one out there. And you come across uh, a new podcast that actually has some ties to a guest we had. So go on and talk about that. Yeah. Our guest from episode 15, Sarah McGuire, her company, Geotech. Uh, she told us that they were thinking about starting a podcast. Well, it's launched. It's called the Construction Revolution. So if you guys like what we do, uh, you like the construction space, uh, you're interested in, in hearing some uh, different type of speakers. You know, they've got some speakers we don't have. They're a, a short form interview only type of show, uh, still packed with information and some good information. I'd encourage you to go listen to episode three. To me, that was the most fascinating one. It actually has their chief technical officer on there. I don't want to butcher the guy's name. I can't pronounce it. It would be (laughs) insulting to him. But a lot of the things he talks about is being an entrepreneur because he was the co-founder of the company. So very, very well-spoken and just does a great job of storytelling about what it was like going from being a PhD student to having a product and trying to take that to market in a mature industry. And the setbacks he faced and the hurdles he faced is very reminiscent of our Actigel story, really. But listening to him and how he overcame that and how he's built the company that he has and they haven't taken any outside funding, like it's all organic growth and they just continue to put that money back in and hammer it and hammer it. It's just really, really good, very interesting, uh, really inspirational episode. If you're if you got that entrepreneurial mindset like us, you know, we're the kind of guys that like to you know, leave the cave, kill something, drag it home kind of guys. And, and if that's you, you'll enjoy that episode. So that's episode three of the Construction Revolution podcast by Geotech. I'll go subscribe to that one for sure. How many um, How many episodes do they have on there so far? I, I was on there last week. They had eight. They okay. launched with eight episodes. They're only like 20 minutes a piece. So uh, it's not like this. There's not a bunch of fun, ha-ha, banter back and forth. But uh, their host 
uh, has a you know a good voice for radio, comes in, asks some pretty good questions. You know, some of them are a little bit softball, but that's all right. Nothing wrong with that. I mean, it, it's still very interesting and uh, very in depth. So they're doing they're doing a good job. They're off to a good start. It's just a, it's just different from us. Yeah. It's just different from what we do, which is good, man. And that's great. Yeah. And but I think what they're doing is still good. It still has value, and the people that listen to the show will probably like that show as well. Okay. I'll definitely go back and uh, and listen to that episode three specifically. I'm always interested to hear how people do things, how they work, their mindset, because sometimes you have guys that start off on a on a path and they know exactly what they do, and then other guys they just you know kind of, for lack of a better term, look into it. But certain situations fall a certain way, and they're able to to take advantage. and And some guys just have this naivety about them, like this drive and naivety, where like they won't let any anything get in their way, and they're just like super focused, and all the outside noise just kind of falls away. And you know, they just make it happen. They make it work. Well, in episode one of their podcast is with their founder, and yeah, he he talked about that where like they had a vision. And then when they went to market, they realized that like they didn't understand the market in practical terms like they thought they did in academic terms. And there was just a huge gap between the technology and the research they were doing and what was actually uh, doable and feasible in the field. And so when he got there, it was like, uh, you know, just a chasm he couldn't cross. So they had to pivot. And, And that mindset of just being a go-getter and a grinder is much more detailed in episode three. Yeah. The CTO really goes after that. And I just found that very entertaining. I'm always impressed when people can kind of pivot on the fly and just kind of deal with things that are uh, hectic to some people, but then they stay cool, calm, and collected all the time, which is why I'm really glad we have uh, Tim Hertek on this episode because to me, no one epitomizes that cool under pressure more than QC guys. QC guys, if you've ever been in a QC you know, lab or office, at least one phone, most of the time two or three phones are, are ringing constantly. They'll answer, give a short, you know, give a short synopsis of what the problem is, how to fix it, hang up, answer another phone, do the exact same thing, and, and just they stay even keeled, mild-mannered the entire time. And I've always been real impressed with that because how many people do you know if you throw them a little adversity, they automatically get like anxious and, and wound up and revved up and everything's mm-hmm. real important and has to be done right now. And they let everybody else, everyone else's hectic mindset affect their own. And then nothing really gets done or not efficiently anyway. So I'm always impressed with QC guys because they have this innate ability just to like cool down, take it slow, take one one problem at a time and, and fix it correctly. So uh, we'll get into that a little bit. Um, with Tim Hertek here on this episode. Uh, Tim actually is with the Sylvie Group, which is uh, Philadelphia, Jersey. Um, no, it's Philadelphia-based. Philadelphia-based. They stretch up toward uh, toward New York. They don't quite, I don't think they quite get there. Right. But. Well, I was on their website and I was reading the origins of the company. They're a massive company now. Mm. Um, they're vertically integrated. They have so many resources so much, so much capital tied up in the business, so many different locations, and they do a little bit of everything. But it started as a family business. They still had, is. Still, still is. is. Guess two generations ago, it had to be now, they had a, a butcher shop. The family had a butcher shop. They were owed a debt. A guy paid the debt with a block plant. <laughs> the owner, the owner of Sophie Group was the son of the owner of the butcher shop. So dad says, hey, I got this block plant from a guy that you know gave it to me to pay his bills. This is the way he could pay his bills. And I said, yeah, I'll take your business. So you got to go learn how to make block. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. And then that's how started. he learned how to make block. And then it, it blossomed from there into uh, concrete plants and then materials and quarries and so on and so forth. Cement terminals. Cement terminals. And it's really become a huge business, but the huge business can be tracked back to its origins of a block plant that was given to the family to pay off a debt. That's great, man. That's cool. Appreciate you sharing that story. Yeah. I wanted to, because I mean, we don't really get into that with Tim, you know, we get into the QC stuff and we get into the nuts and bolts of what he does, but I didn't want that story to go by the wayside. I want people, (laughs) wanted people to realize that Back when this company was started 
40s, I think, 40s or 50s. It was a different world back then. <laughs> you, business was just a different, different animal back then, which was cool. But yeah, with that story, with that story told, uh, without any further ado, we'll get into our uh, episode 16 interview here with Tim Hertak, the QC manager for Sylvie Group. Thank you for joining us, Tim. We really appreciate you coming on here. Uh, you know, thank the good Lord that I uh, provided a rain day so your phone's not blowing up the entire time we're trying to have this conversation. I appreciate to be here, guys. It's uh, been looking forward to this and uh, love talking shop here. So, Absolutely, man. Hey, can you tell the audience uh, what it is you're doing, who you're doing it for, and where you're located at? Sure thing. Um, my name is Tim Hertak, and I work for the Sylvie Group Companies. We're a large uh, construction material supplier uh, in the uh, metro Philadelphia area with service areas in southeastern Pennsylvania and all of New Jersey. Yeah, don't sell yourself short. Biggest in the state of Pennsylvania, right, Tim? We're one of the biggest for sure. Yep. <laughs> all right. Good, man. Well, uh, you, you work in a QC role and that's kind of been your existence for a while. And I got to tell you, man, I, I love QC guys, ready makes QC guys because the to everyone else in the company, the world is burning to the ground. It's a five alarm fire, all hands on deck. And you're sitting there cool as a cucumber, just phone going crazy. And, you know, I was in your office only for like an hour a few weeks ago. And I, no less than three people barged in with what they thought was an emergency. And, you know, with a with a blood pressure of 50 beats per minute, he just turns around, answers all their questions and they run away. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I quite endearingly refer to most of our salesmen as a chicken little because to them, the world's coming to an end every five minutes, you know. <laughs> so but being in, being in QC, man, you got to you got to keep your wits about you because, you know, it's not, you know, if something's going to happen, it's when and it's all day long and. You're constantly putting fires out and you just kind of go with the flow, man. That's all you can do. That's it, brother. Uh, but how did you get into this spot? Like, like, what's your background? Where'd you get all this knowledge for the people that, you know, they're going to learn over this conversation that, uh, you know, your concrete knowledge is, is second to none. And the people I've, I've talked to and we've talked to a lot of people. And so I'm really glad you're here. You're going to learn us some stuff today. But, but how'd you get to this point? Where'd you come from? What's your background? Well, that's a great question. Um, you know. Growing up in South Central Pennsylvania, my father's been in the aggregates business uh, his entire career. Started out working for Bethlehem Steel in an underground coal mine and then ended up uh, working in an above ground limestone pit. And ever since I was little, you know, taking trips to the quarry on the weekends and checking out the loaders and watching all the neat stuff that goes on over there, it's always, I've always had an interest in that. You know, so it really started at an early age for me. My father's been in the business his whole entire career. He's retired now from Vulcan materials. But, uh, you know, that was a big, big stepping point for me is when I was getting ready to graduate from high school, I knew I wanted to be in engineering, but I really wasn't sure where or how that, you know, where that path wanted to, to lead me. So when I got out of college, I started in, in, uh, in the construction business and I worked on the construction side as a project manager. And it wasn't until I uh, took my second job out of college and I started working for a bridge division of a construction company. Over the course of the next couple of years, you really, you know, building bridges, primarily it's, it's out of concrete. So you start to learn about, you know, basics of concrete mix design, form work, how to place concrete, finish concrete, the importance of curing concrete. You're looking at all the DOT specs. So, you, you know, guys building bridges, you know, they're concrete guys. They have to be. And I was fortunate enough, uh, the company that I worked for in uh, South Central PA was a company called Conewago Enterprises. And they had a construction division and they also had a ready mix division. And uh, one day I got called into my boss's office and he said, uh, got good news and bad news for you. He says, uh, bad news is today's your last day at Conewago Enterprises. I said, uh-oh, what's going on? He says, well, good news is it's going to be your first day at Conewago Ready Mix. We're going to transfer you down to the ready mix division and uh, trial by fire. So go down there and learn how to run a concrete plant and uh, I'll check in with you next week. So that's about how it got started. And uh, to be honest with you, I, I had a basic understanding of, of concrete materials. And once I jumped into that role with that ready mix position, you know, it just started to build from there. You know, you start with, hey, go spend a week with the QC guy. You start to learn the basics of gradation and sand, how important the sand is. And, and then <clears throat> had a lot of uh, a lot of help along the way. 
Um, a lot of our vendors and our suppliers, you know, those guys are the knowledge freaks when it comes to concrete. I mean, I learned everything from our admixture suppliers, uh, from our cement salesmen, and had a lot of good support, you know, taking that next step from kind of getting the basic understanding of how things go together to progressing, you know, through the material. How did you make the leap, uh, Connor Wogo? At some point, uh, you were with Sika, right? So, so tell me how that happened. Sure. So I spent a couple of years at Conewago and that's where I really cut my teeth in, uh, in the concrete business. And my wife is originally from uh, the New England area in Boston. We decided to get married and, you know, start a, start a family. So we ended up um, relocating from South Central Pennsylvania, my, where I grew up, and moved to Boston. And that was a little bit of a culture shock for me, being a country boy from <laughs> Adams County, PA. But, uh, you know, Going to work for Sika, that's kind of where a lot of the growth took place. I got exposed to a lot of the national guys, you know, guys coming into the lab. And we really started to focus on concrete technology and how admixtures can incorporate, you know, that growth. And so I, I spent some time at Sika. I was the uh, regional technical services manager there and spent a lot of time in New England, uh, upstate New York, Pennsylvania, New Jersey. So I stayed fairly local. But my, my, you know, my number one role there at Sika was to provide customer support uh, when it comes to technical issues, troubleshooting, mixed design development, material selection. So we also, you know, it was kind of a two-sided role. One was to um, take care of our existing customer base, help them with mixed designs, any troubleshooting they're having. Hey, my air's high, my air's low, that kind of stuff. And then the, the other the other side of it was business development. We were going into potential accounts, evaluating what they were doing, their processes, their materials, see what we could do to help them, whether it was, you know, design and implementation of new mix designs or whether it's, you know, trying to skin the cat a different way and, you know, maybe pull a little bit of cement out here and there, save them 50 cents to a buck on their mix designs and look at it from a from an economic perspective as well. Well, you mentioned that territory and I mean, just in the state of Pennsylvania alone, going from the East Pennsylvania to West Pennsylvania, the materials changed drastically. So how how much of a challenge it was for you in that area uh, that you were servicing to get familiar with the rocks and, and cement and water in those places to be effective for your customers? Yeah, that's Pennsylvania is a very unique Place when it comes to ready mix production, you've got the gamut from your small family owned producers that might have one or two plants and five, six, seven trucks to some of the very large producers we have in a state that own 25 ready mix plants, three quarries, sand plants, and you name it. And the, the materials vary just as much as the producers do. Um, we're not blessed with natural sand in Pennsylvania. So if you want natural sand, you have to drive to the Maryland shore to Delaware to go pick it up and it's expensive. In some markets you can, you can charge for that and get away with it. But a lot of time you're using manufactured sand, you're using the local materials that you have. Most of central Pennsylvania is pretty lucky with the limestone deposit. Um, you've got some really good limestone there. You know, some people, you know, they freak out a little bit when they hear you're using limestone, but the majority of the limestone in Pennsylvania is fantastic for ready mix production. It's hard, it's durable, it crushes very cubically. Most of it's very non-ASR reactive, so it kind of makes it easy in that sense. But you know, you're right. If you can't just go up and change your the local materials that you have, you got to make do with what you got, and. You just kind of figure out the nuances of it. You know, you start with your materials, you look at your stone, you look at your blended gradations. And then if you're having to use manufactured sand, then you start down that road and try to figure out how to make it work. Sometimes you have to cut it with some masonry sand. Sometimes you have to bite the bullet and drive 200 miles to go get some natural sand to make it work. But uh, you start with the basics, you put it together and then you start looking at it. You know, I'm, I'm a big proponent of not trying to run a QC department from behind a desk. You've got to get your hands into concrete every day. And that's something that I stress to our guys here at Sylvia's, you know, every day is a new day, man. You got to get your hands in there and see what, let the concrete tell you what it wants to do. Cause you're not gonna, you're not gonna force it one way or the other. So you let the concrete tell you what it's gonna wanna do that day. 
and you, you go with it. You make your adjustments. If you try to figure out all the ins and outs of why it's doing this or why it's doing that, you'll chase your tail and bang your head against the wall. So concrete's an unforgiving animal if you try to tame it. So we just, uh, you know, you, you let the concrete tell you what it's going to do that day, and then you make your adjustments. And it's the same thing with those materials. You let the materials dictate, you know, what they're going to do, and then you make your adjustments accordingly. So it's not so much about how much you know about concrete. You just have to be willing to uh, to, to go with it, make your adjustments as you need to. Well, it's interesting you talk about having that field knowledge. And there at Sylvie, you've incorporated that into your team. Before someone can become a QC manager, they have to spend a year in the field as a QC tech, regardless of what their title is. You got to get out there and put in the work. Is that uh, true for other departments or is, is that just what you're doing for your team? Absolutely. We probably seven or eight years ago, uh, we've instituted a program called the Leadership Development Program here at Sylvie. So that program's open to any college graduate. So you have to have a four-year bachelor's degree in an engineering or construction-related background. And that program was originally designed to bring in young college graduates who wanted to get into our business. And what it does is it gives them exposure to the multiple facets of what we do at Sylvie. So it was mainly for operations trainees. They come in, they spend you know, three, four months running at a re working at a ready mix plant, they might spend four or five months at one of our mining facilities, our hard rock mines, and then they might spend another three, four months down at one of the sand plants. So they start, the, they see the breadth of kind of what we do as a company. And then depending on where there's need or where there's some openings, then they are, you know, it gives them an outlet to get their feet under themselves, kind of get the experience of what we're all about, and then kind of put them into position to let them start taking over. And the program was a huge success. And so we started implementing this uh, leadership development program into other avenues of our business. So we brought on uh, some quality control people through the LDP program where I think we're starting a position this summer in our uh, dispatch customer service department. And uh, it's just a great way to get somebody new to the business right out of school. Uh, shows them how we operate or the different sides of what we do. And then after that first year, you know, it really puts them in a position to, you know, have some leadership abilities, you know, bring to the table what, what they have. And uh, nine times out of 10, it's, it's a, it's a launching pad for a lot of our young leaders here in the company. No, that's great. Are, are you guys taking college interns as well? Cause that was valuable for Joey and I, we were in college cause you know, you could sit and read it out of a textbook as much as you want and, and you can play with pilot scale models and, and work in the lab at university as, as much as you want, but it's a totally different ball game when you get out there and get your feet wet. So do you guys offer internships for college? Absolutely. Uh, we have, I think we might, it's between six and eight positions a summer. We'll, we'll hire uh, summer interns in the operations group. We have uh, two summer interns in our QC department this year. And uh, I think we're also bringing on an intern to work in our customer service dispatch area again. Kind of quickly about what we do at Sylvia. I mean, we're running 13 concrete plants right now. We have 13 plants in the fleet and uh, 12 of them are operational right now. And just the amount of phone calls and the customers that we deal with on a daily basis. You know, we, we started with the operations group having interns, but now our, our customer service and dispatch department's so big, you know, they're, they're, they benefit greatly from having some interns there too, because it's really tough to bring somebody into, into the dispatch side that doesn't talk the talk. You know what I mean? <laughs> Try to educate a customer service rep on what slump is, uh, you know, Hey, what does it mean when my air is low and I'm sending the truck back? So it's, it's good to get some of these, you know, these younger guys into the business and, and through an internship, it's been very valuable to us. Where uh, where are you getting those interns? Do you have a couple of universities or colleges around the state, or do you bring them in from all over the country, or where are you getting them at? So I know most of you guys are CIM graduates from Middle Tennessee State, I believe. Yes, sir. Fantastic. So uh, we're really fortunate that uh, up in, um, in Newark, New Jersey, is uh, New Jersey Institute of Technology, NJIT. Yep. And uh, here at Sylvie, we're very proud to be affiliated with NJIT and to be uh, part of the CIM program there. Our vice president of human resources is actually the chair of the patrons committee for the CIM program up at NJIT. 
and uh, we recruit heavily from their department. And so as far as our LDP candidates and our summer internships, we, we recruit heavily from NJIT. There's a lot of great uh, civil engineering programs locally in, in, in central New Jersey, as well as southeastern Pennsylvania. So we will recruit anywhere we can find, you know, willing candidates, but primarily, you know, we focus on southeastern PA in New Jersey. No, that's great. Uh, Joey and I are on uh, part of the patrons. I just joined actually at uh, MTSU, so the, the Tennessee uh, program down there. I uh, just joined last week. It was funny. I uh, was talking to one of the patrons on the board. He's like, how come you're not a member of the patrons? <laughs> I, was like, I was like, you know, nobody ever asked. I didn't even know how. And he was like, literally click a button, dude. <laughs> He's like, all right. And he's like, you know, you pay your little thing fee to get in. And I was like, oh, well, I would have been supporting you long ago. Just uh, wasn't sure. So uh, I, in that outreach, kind of kind of refocused me a little bit to say, okay, well, if they're not reaching guys like me who – are big proponents of the industry. We need to make sure that we're reaching people that may not be as aware of the program in the industry. So thank you, Tim, for those details. And and I want to go back for a second to your time at Seca. Uh, we've talked a few times about one of the projects you had uh, that was very, very challenging, where you were creating an SEC mix that had to, uh, you know, follow through with some anti-washout characteristics and had to have like a slump retention time of some, you know, un- godly amount of hours uh what was that project hit, hit me with it again what was that project you were doing and and tell the listeners just one of the it's really an impressive mix you guys designed i want you to brag on yourself just a little bit i, I do like to brag once in a while but i can't take full credit for this because you asked me earlier kind of where i learned all this from and i have to give a shout out to uh one of my colleagues and one of my great buddies in the industry his name's chris davis he's a he's a technologist at Sika. And uh, he's a sales rep um, in that southwestern part of Pennsylvania and, and uh, West Virginia. But back from my days at Conewago, Chris was my sales rep, uh, Chris and Bob Frontino. And those guys really kind of taught me how to get things done. And I was fortunate enough to join those guys at Sika after my time at Conewago. And uh, we spearheaded a project up in north central Pennsylvania for the Army Corps of Engineers. And basically what it was is they were going to reinforce an earthen dam with a concrete wall. So basically they, they drilled a giant wall, cast in place wall into the face of this dam to stabilize it. And, uh, you know, anybody that's done work for the Corps of Engineers know how, how stringent they are and all their policies and procedures. And so we basically built a lab up in the middle of nowhere, um, put a portable plant up and partnered with a local ready mix company up there and set up the whole testing gamut, um, you know, the washout tube for the, uh, the, the washout for the Corps of Engineers. And it took, I think it was almost a full year of trial and error and development to get that mix designed to perform the way that they wanted it to. And essentially what it was, it was a self-consolidating mix that would have to hold slump for, I think it was 12 hours. So, you know, imagine being in a lab with two little, you know, mini mixers and you'd weigh up a, a cubic foot or maybe a foot and a half trial mix. And you started at six o'clock in the morning and you just watch it turn for 10 hours at a time, hoping it makes slump, you know, and uh, some days we'd get six or seven hours and then it would tank. And then some days you would get it to hold for 18 hours, but then the stuff wasn't set up for three days. So, you know, it's trying to find that sweet spot to, to hold slump, uh, for 12 hours and then to actually have it set up fairly quickly after that because they would have to come in and, and, and core into that fresh concrete a couple of days later to, to knit those panels together as they as they drilled it. But yeah, those were some long days up there. No internet connection. There's, you know, not a whole lot to do up there, but we were just humping buckets around and doing these trial batches all day. But uh, we got it figured out. And I think that project's finished now. It ended about a year and a half ago. But uh, neat project. That's such a crazy mix. 12 hours, slump retention. And then, oh, yeah, by the way, 24 hours later, it needs to have all the strength that needs so we can come in and work on yeah. it. So uh, we're about, uh, as you know, Tim, we're about to uh, run anti-washout mixes this week. We, we just built our own rig. You know, Josh fabricated the uh, fancy little basket you got to have and all that. And we 
we got this thing set up, ready to go. Uh, what challenges are we going to face? What do we need to look out for when we're running that anti-washout test? You know, for people that aren't familiar with it, you got your tube, it's a column, uh, vertical, uh, filled with water. Now you put your concrete in a little metal basket and you uh, plunge the basket down in the water and pick it back up and uh, you weigh it uh, before and after each plunge to see how much concrete you've lost, how much cement paste has washed out. And uh, the different additives you're using, you're hoping you're going to reduce the amount of washout, uh, hence the uh, anti-washout test. Uh, so what challenges are we going to face, Tim? What, what's the hard part about this thing? What, what, are the, what are the traps? What's interesting with anti-washout mixes is, you know, anti-washout admixtures in general are viscosity modifiers on steroids. So, you know, in the circumstance where, where we were trying to accomplish is we were trying to provide a self-consolidating mix at a 24, 25-inch spread. But at the same time, this thing's going into groundwater. And we didn't want all the cement paste to wash away. So you're trying to blow this mix out to a 24, 25 inch spread, but not have it completely wash out when it goes into water. So you're, you're kind of fighting it from two ends. So, you know, one of the, you know, one of the challenges we had was trying to find that balance between getting a nice concrete mix that would flow and be self-consolidating, but at the same time still hold up to that, that rigorous uh, washout test. So, Again, it's it's a lot of trial and error. You might put a mixed design together on paper that you're like, man, this thing's a home run. We got it made. And then you put it, you know, you, you run a mix, you put it in the tank, and it fails miserably. And you're like, well, what just happened? So my approach is to don't worry about why it failed. Just figure out what to do on the next one. And just, you know, it's iterations. You just keep doing it over and over and over again until you get it to where you want it to. And, and you go from there. Well, it's interesting, interesting that the uh, the Army Corps that you mentioned is so stringent on their specs, but uh, your SEC mix is probably way out of bounds for, for the anti-washout mixes they prescribe because the one that's prescribed is like a six-inch slump. Right. <laughs> yeah, now, see, that was a little unique up there because of the, the project. It was, you know, a one-of-a-kind type deal. So there, <clears throat> there was – we had a great relationship with the, the local team that we had in place. So obviously they've got their rule book that's, you know, five inches thick of everything you can and can't do. But at the end of the day, you know, we wanted to get the job done and they wanted to get the job done. And it kind of evolved from, hey, here's a prescriptive approach. This is what we want you to do. And it, it, it kind of morphed into, I wouldn't say a performance-based spec, but they, you know, they, they gave you some leeway to, to try to get the mix to do what they wanted it to do at the end. What was the name of the dam? So people that want to look this up, uh, that are listening to the show, want to look up the dam. Which one was it? I believe it's called the East Branch Dam. It's in uh, north of St. Mary's, Pennsylvania. It's on the East Branch of the Clarion River. All right, 10-4 East Branch Dam. All right, we'll put a link to it. One of the big things on the show that we like to cover is technology. And uh, the uh, guest we had on uh, in episode 15 was Sarah McGuire from Geotech. You know, they're doing the maturity sensors and uh, we, we love that technology. We, we love the idea of reducing as much human error as humanly possible in the, the, the design, testing, placement of concrete. You know, we, we love the idea of just streamlining things uh, and, and love that technology is going to help concrete do that. Uh, what technology excites you out there in the industry? Well, Sarah's technology, for one, is very exciting. We're actually, uh, we've done some work with Geotech in the past, and, um, you know, we're, we're in contact with them now about developing some high early strength concrete mixes uh, utilizing their technology. So that's, that's pretty exciting. Another big piece of technology that we've really come to embrace in the last two years is uh, we're big proponents of a, of a new product out there called uh, the AirTrack system from Sidra. And what it is, it's, it's, a, uh, it's a panel that gets installed uh, on the barrel of a ready-mix truck that monitors in real-time uh, air content, concrete temperature. And it has been a game-changer for us. So we currently have 16 of our trucks fitted out with that technology, and we're, we have some new trucks on order coming in this summer that we're going to put that technology on as well. It's been really good for us because what it allows us to do is our old model of how we used to manage our QC team. 
we're running 13 plants. I wish I had 13 guys to stick at every plant and, you know, take care of it that way. But, you know, we've got some really high horsepower plants that are cranking out thousand yards, 1500 yards a day. And then we have a couple smaller ones that might do two, 300 yards a day. So what we found with the air track system is, is our smaller volume plants, we can remotely monitor what the concrete's doing using the air track system. So I don't necessarily need a technician at that plant to make adjustments to actually physically be there with a slump cone and an air pot, seeing what the concrete's doing. So I have access to all of the trucks uh, through an internet connection. So anywhere I'm at that I have a cell phone or a laptop with internet, I can monitor any one of those trucks. I can see what the concrete temperature is. I can see what the air content is. I can see which way the barrel's turning. So it's crystal clear as day when the truck gets to the job site, how long he mixed up before he you know, gave a sample to a tester or that sort of thing. And we can see how long it takes for him to unload the truck. Another use of that technology is, you know, by interpretation on which way the barrel's going, it's pretty obvious when the drivers are adding water between the, the plant and the job site. So you always ask him, hey, how much water did you add? Oh, I didn't, I didn't touch it. I didn't touch it. Well, you know, add 10 gallons. There you go. Yes, sir. <laughs> yeah, we did more like 20 or 30, but, you know, it's, it's pretty wild because, you know, I can see – you know, you can see on the graph that their barrel's in full charge mode when they're getting loaded at the plant. Then they drive down the road and most of them lock it into drum control and the barrel's creeping down the road. And, you know, all of a sudden, 15 minutes later, you see the barrel rev up again for five minutes. And all of a sudden you see your air start to go up again. I'm like, ah, yeah, I got you there, you know. But um, <laughs> it, it's pretty wild because it's actually taught us as a QC group a lot about the way our concrete behaves from the time it leaves the plant to the time it gets to the job site. Most, most guys in QC, we know that your air is going to decay and you're going to lose some slump going down the road. So obviously if we're shooting for 6% air in a four inch slump at the job site, we're probably going to be batching it a little looser than that. And we're probably going to be batching the air one, 2% higher, depending on what's in the mix, just a vanilla mix. But with these air track systems, you know, we're correlating what the barrel revolutions are doing and what the concrete's doing in conjunction with that. And most of our guys, you know, we're lucky at Sylvie, we have 210 front discharge trucks. Our entire fleet are uh, front discharge trucks and they all have uh, automatic drum control. So they get loaded at the plant, they go down the road. Most of them will lock that into, you know, constant RPM and the truck's going down the road and the barrel's only turning it one or one and a half RPMs a minute. And that's like the kiss of death, the concrete for us. You know, the way our mixes are designed, the admixtures that we use, you see a huge decline in air content and our slump values were, you know, we were losing a lot of slump. And, and it wasn't that there was a problem with the mix or there was a problem with the admixtures or whatever. It was just a matter of how we were maintaining those loads going down the road. And uh, it was a big eye-opening experience for us because we started telling these guys, hey, when you leave the plant, drop that thing into drum control, but get the RPMs up to like three, four RPMs going down the road. And all of a sudden our slump started stabilizing, our air content really stabilized. And uh, it was, that was a game changer for us because now instead of trying to shoot for these crazy targets that are out of spec, I mean, it sounds silly. You're batching, you're intentionally batching concrete out of spec, hoping that it'll end up in spec when the truck gets there. And, uh, mm-hmm. You know, now there's there's all different kinds of technology with you know slump retaining admixtures and this and that and you know what it all comes down to is making sure the drivers are doing you know what they should be doing and educating the guys and saying hey you know loads with high doses of super plasticizer might behave a little differently but ignore the that slump gauge in your truck and just you know haul it appropriately keep your keep your barrel speed up to where it should be and just let the concrete do what it's going to do. And it, that's, that's been a big one for us. Do you guys have a specific program that teaches your drivers about, you know, concrete fundamentals or anything like that? Or do you know of any or can suggest any? Well, we're, uh, we're huge proponents of the national ready mix concrete association, the NRMCA and their training programs in general are fantastic. You know, I think Paul and I met, at the NRMCA short course 10 years ago, maybe Paul. 
Yeah, um, yeah, uh, 2011, something like that. Yeah, but uh, we 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 really encourage our drivers to go through the uh, the concrete delivery. I think it's the concrete professional concrete delivery program, or it's a certified delivery professional, or something like that. But anyway, it's a training course for the drivers to go to, and it's you know instead of just calling them a truck driver, now they're a certified delivery professional. And what it does is it you know gives some credence to what they're doing, and it provides a lot of good training for them. And then we try to educate our guys just based on what the mixes are doing. So we try to make them aware, hey, pay attention on your delivery ticket. There's going to be a line item at the bottom that says if this load has super plasticizer in it or not. So if a load has super P, the guys know that it's going to behave a little differently than a regular four-inch slump mix going down the road. So we try to you know, keep the guys educated on what we're doing with the mixes. If we make uh, you know, a fairly big adjustment to the mix design. We're going to tell the plant managers, "Hey guys, this mix here in particular, it's a it's a workhorse mix for us. We made a pretty drastic change. Get the word out to the drivers. Let's see what the mix is doing." And you know, we we try to be proactive with the drivers in that regard. No, that's great. Hey, speaking of the NRMCA, I want to get back to these uh, concrete hatches in just a second. But speaking of the NRMCA, Tim, I'm trying to convince our friend Colin Lobo to come on the program. So. If you could please pressure him to get his rear end on the show. Anybody listen to this, go out, send him messages, tell him you love the program. He needs to get on here. Dude's a genius. Everybody needs to hear from him. Yeah, eventually he'll be the only one that hasn't been on the program, and then we can all peer pressure him. Yeah, there you go. That's, that's the plan. I tell you what, I mean, Colin and Gary Mullings and all those guys down there, they've been just a f- tremendous resource for every for the industry in general. I mean, we're really lucky that we have – a group like that that we can use as a resource i mean like we said i you know i went through the short course uh 10 11 years ago and i keep that manual on my desk you know the, the book that i got from that class 10 years ago i'm still into it the pages are ripped out of it i had to re-hole punch the thing three or four times it's duct taped together but it's a phenomenal resource and uh the the durability class is a game changer for you know guys like me in the qc side technical services i mean that's huge because that takes your that takes your your level of understanding from what a slump cone is and what an air pot does and why it's important to the the mechanics of of what the concrete's actually doing it gets into you know cement chemistry and their reactions with you know slag and fly ash and silica fume to durability issues you know that's a hot button these days alkali silica reactivity and you know sulfate attack and you name it but I can't say enough good things about the NRMCA. They've been a tremendous asset for us. Well, you're, that makes you only the uh, second other person I know of other than me that's taken uh, that level four course. I'm assuming you also passed it. But the uh, the best thing about that durability course for me was it reinforced the idea of you need to be able to identify the problem first. Like, how do you identify that it's sulfate attack? How do you identify that it's ASL? How do you, identify the crazy and curling cracking you know uh, you know decracking what is the difference in decracking and how do you differentiate that from other cracking and to be able to recognize that and then say okay now that i recognize what the deterioration problem is now i can go back analyze and find out why it happened and how do i prevent it from happening in the future yeah it's you know i try to take some of our younger guys in the field with me anytime i'm doing an investigation into scaling cracking any sort of, you know, customer issue where, you know, I like to, I like to bring the, the younger guys out and say, Hey, tell me what you see. And what do you think? What caused that? You know, instead of trying to teach them everything in a, you know, in the office or in a training session where they're just looking in a book, it's, I think it's important to get them out in the field and let them see firsthand what a lot of these issues are. And then once you recognize the issue, then you can start working backwards to figure out how you're going to fix it going forward so you don't have those issues anymore. Some of it's in our control, some of it's not. But at the end of the day, it's, it's important for those guys to understand exactly what the problems is, what they are. So they can go to the customer and say, you know what, maybe we should have, or you know, maybe we started the finishing process a little too early and we trapped some bleed water. Or, you know, maybe we were out of spec you know, coming out of the concrete plant and maybe we were a little too wet and you had some plastic settlement that occurred and, and that sort of thing. So it's understanding the, the mechanisms of all this is important. 
Speaking of that, Tim, and, and you being in the QC role, uh, looking back from where you started to where you are now as you're mentoring these younger guys, is there one particular issue or, or aspect of, of that diagnosis or diagnostic period where it clicked with you in the field? You mentioned like there's just some things you can't grasp fully from a textbook. You've got to be on the job site. Is there one issue that clicked with you after being on the job site and then, you, you know, you found out about it from being in the field? I think the biggest one of the big things is is you don't get you don't get all the information up front from the customer. You usually just get, man, your concrete was bad today. It was just really bad. <laughs> well, you know, Tim, they're never going to call you until you did a good job. Right? I, I know. I, I gave up on that a long time ago. But you know, you you take you take the initial phone call from the customer, just saying, man, the concrete was terrible today. It did this or did that. But then to go out and understand why it was bad. So, you know, just a couple weeks ago, we were doing some work, you know, down uh, outside of Philadelphia, real close to the Delaware River, and it was 25, 30% relative humidity. We had a 25 mile an hour wind coming off the river. And the guys had some issues finishing the concrete. And, and it was as simple as, guys, put this thing on your phone. It's a weather app. It tells you what your evaporation rate's going to be. If this thing's red, maybe think about not waiting, you know, pour early in the morning before the sun comes up and get this thing covered before, you know, you really start to bleed off all your evaporation. And, and it could just, and a lot of time it's just educating our customer that cleans up a lot of those loose ends. Cause most of the time we're not going out to investigate catastrophic failures. You know, we'll have some cracking here and there, or we'll have some spalling or delamination. I mean, when you provide concrete in the mid Atlantic area, you know, our free stall cycles are, are terrible. I mean, it's just, if you're up in Northern Maine or Canada, it'll freeze and then it stays frozen for the whole winter and then you're fine. But like, you know, in our, in our geographic area, it freezes every night and then it thaws out every morning and it freezes again, thaws out and guys love putting salt on concrete. And that's, you know, that's yeah. bad news and people don't want to hear it. And I understand the, the liabilities of it, but you know, rock salt and concrete, they do not like each other at all. And uh, so most of the time it's, it's not so much, you know, diagnosing those 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 massive areas or those massive issues, but uh, it's more educating our customers on a little nitty gritty details on how to make a good job a really good job. We've talked about it on here. If anybody can come up with the technology that truly makes concrete impregnable, once it's placed, it's down. Water cannot migrate through the surface it has zero chance to get to the reinforcing steel and cause all the issues we all know about if you could truly create that product then you know that's a billion dollar idea oh yeah that'd be pretty funny yeah, tim have you have you seen anything out there that's, that's coming close to providing that solution no because uh, most of the time you solve one problem and you start to affect an area on the other side Silica fumes great at densifying concrete, but at the same time, it becomes hard to finish and hard to manage from a producer standpoint. So there's all these gives and takes, and it's one of the great things about concrete and one of the, the things that will drive you crazy every day is the variability of what you're doing. You're working with raw materials that change every day. I, I get calls from customers all the time. Man, the concrete was awesome yesterday. Why is it, you know, it's not, it's doing something totally different today. And it's just like, we're not, we're not making widgets here, guys. You know, we're not on, a, on an assembly line just cranking out the same thing over and over again. Our raw materials are changing every day. Our sand gradations are fluctuating. The, you know, our stone gradations are changing. Um, even the cement, you know, here at Sylvie, we're lucky because we own uh, one of the world's largest single source cement terminals anywhere in the world. Uh, we can hold 165,000 metric tons of cement and uh, cementitious materials at one location. So, you know, we import our cement 50,000 tons at a time, you know, and not all that cement is the same. No matter how good of a job the cement, the cement plants are at keeping everything, you know, all their quality procedures in check, there's going to be variability in your cement as well. You know, and we see it, you know, it's a matter of managing your materials, you know, as far as, you know, something that fixes all your durability issues, there's something out there that I haven't seen yet. I'm, I'm dying to get my hands on it because that'd make my life a whole lot easier. <laughs> no, that's right. Hey, you're throwing out big numbers like that on your cement usage. We got a bunch of cement producers that are listening to this podcast. You're probably going to get some phone calls. I'm really sorry about that. <laughs> One thing I really like 
you know, being here at Sylvia's, we're vertically integrated on our material side. So we control just about every aspect of what goes into our concrete. We have our import terminal uh, facility that's about 15 miles, 10 miles from our main office. It's right on the Delaware River. Uh, it's a deep water port. We can bring in any size ship, you know, that we can fit up the river. So we're importing cement. We're importing uh, slag right now. We were importers of fly ash years ago. Fly ash is getting harder and harder to come by. And quality fly ash is getting really hard to find. So we have pretty good control over our cement and our SCM materials. And then we also own and operate uh, a rock mine outside of Princeton, New Jersey. So we're, we're self-supplying, I think, five or six plants in the fleet with our own stone. And then we own and operate three uh, sand plants uh, in the state of New Jersey. So 100% of our ready-mix plants are using our own internally produced sand. And we've got, you know, most quarries, they're in, in sand plants, they're not producing for a specific intended use. They're producing to a, a spec, you know, but that same 57 stone or that same number eight stone, it could go anywhere. Whereas we're focused on our production specifically for our concrete use. So, you know, that, that kind of helps keep everything in, in check. So everybody in concrete knows the fly ash shortage situation, you know, everybody been howling at the moon about it for more than a decade now. And uh, every year it seems like more and more of reality. And then some of these ash guys are dredging up their old ponds and they're finding ash in the, in the ponds, drying it out and, and selling that. So cost is going up, you know, year over year. And, uh, you know, are you seeing any products out there, any innovations in the industry that are going to be able to replace the flash as it goes off? Or are you just going to start supplementing with great cement? What are you seeing? You know, I saw a, I saw a survey on LinkedIn the other day that was asking about the fly ash shortage and what your intentions were if you lost your source of fly ash. And most everybody, I think it was over 50 or 60 percent that responded, said that they were just going to switch to slag or silica fuel. Um, you know, class F fly ash is a great mitigator for ASR. So some areas actually even locally, you know, northeastern Pennsylvania's pretty susceptible to ASR damage because their aggregates up there are, are reactive. So those guys are using fly ash to help mitigate ASR. So they have some options to a different material. They might look at using slag or they might be looking at some admixture based solutions to take care of ASR. I'm lucky. We're, we're very blessed here in, in the southern part of uh, Pennsylvania and New Jersey where the majority of our aggregates are non-reactive. So we're not typically using uh, and F ash for mitigation purposes, we're going to be using more as a cement replacement. As fly ash gets harder and harder to find, I think the slag guys are going to get busier and busier because that's that's the easiest uh, material to go get in, in replace of fly ash. But you know, there's some new technologies out there. I know we've looked at uh, recycled glass as a pozzolan. Uh, there's there's some other options out there that we've looked at, but you know, as far as what we're doing, you know, we're, you know, we have control over our slag coming into Riverside. We've got some pretty good sources. We've looked at slag all over the world and we, we've identified some pretty good sources and uh, we have some pretty good relationships there. So uh, we're going to continue to rely on slag, I think, going forward. Josh, did you have any further questions for Mr. Hurtek? No, no, nothing, nothing indirectly. I hear um, he covered a lot in this interview. We appreciate your time and, and we'll let you get back to it. We know you're a busy guy and for you to take uh, an hour out of your time to uh, come on the podcast today is something we truly appreciate. Guys, it's been a pleasure and uh, I love what you're doing with the podcast. Uh, I'm a, pretty much a concrete nerd and, uh, you know, I really love listening to everybody, you know, all these episodes and uh, it's, it's great for the industry and, uh, Really look forward to, to hearing all the other episodes coming out and uh, wish you guys all the success, man. Thanks, Tim. I really appreciate that. Joey, before we let him go, do you have anything else for Tim? No, um, just like Josh said, appreciate you coming on, Tim. Uh, glad to hear everything's going smooth up in Pennsylvania and everything's getting back to normal and looking forward to seeing what you guys got in store for us in the future. Sounds good. Thanks a lot, guys. All right, Tim. All right. Take care, brother. Take care. Yep. See you. Bye. See you, man. 
And that's all for this episode. Thanks for joining us here on the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast. And one final thank you to Tim Hurtek and uh, everything that he has shared with us here on this interview from his time at QC Manager at the Sylvie Group. Uh, be sure to follow us on social media and our Facebook and Instagram page. Search us out by searching Add 10 Gallons to see a video element of the show and some promotional items for upcoming guests and interviews that we'll post on there from time to time. Also be on the lookout for our upcoming episode, episode 17, where it is confirmed we do indeed have Colin Lobo coming on the show. So uh, something to look forward to there for you guys. So until then, we'll catch you next time on the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast. 